Um, if you're a regular attender, but you missed last week, uh, let me fill you in just a little bit on what we've been doing. So last week, we started our spring teaching series on King David. That's where we are in the Old Testament uh, this series, and, and we kicked it off, but we did it a little bit differently. We had a, a live recording of our discipleship podcast, Centered, Committed, Confident is the name of it, and um, we spent our time focusing on, who, on how to practically go about understanding and reading the Old Testament. Um, a couple of you have asked me, hey, where's the podcast? I haven't noticed it up. Um, good eye. That's because uh, it's actually going to be released this next Thursday morning. So um, if you don't listen to the podcast normally, it releases every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. and uh, in the rotation. So there was one that released this morning, right? But in the rotation, the live recording is being released next Thursday. So if you want to catch up on that or listen to it, um, if you'd rather watch it and, and see that happen rather than just listen to it, if you didn't know, all of our messages from every single Thursday night are uploaded on YouTube every week. Um, so if you want to go back and watch any of those, or particularly this message, um, that live podcast recording is already on YouTube. So you can just go there, just type in Cormdale College, and you'll find out the rest, right? So that's a way you can check it out as well. Anyway, that's what we did last week. We started the King David series, not actually talking about King David too much, right? Uh, we did talk about David. I alluded to him quite a bit. We talked about some of the things that are steeped in the culture that he's in, um, but we really didn't dive into his life yet. And um, this week, we are also not talking about King David just yet, but, but, but here's why. Tonight, we're actually going to be spending our entire time talking about and learning about King Saul. King Saul is who we are focusing on tonight, and, and here's the reason for it. Um, King Saul and King David, they overlap and they interact a lot, right? This is not one of the situations where a king existed and then he died and another king was then crowned king and took over. This is a situation in which there was a king that was rejected but remained king and then another one anointed under him. And, and so they overlapped for several years. And so for us to, to better understand David and all that's going to occur in his life, because he sort of comes up in the middle of, of King Saul's reign, we need to understand Saul better in order to set up our time for David. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at a few moments of Saul's life and time as king. We're going to be learning a little bit about him but we are also going to be learning about how we, as New Testament Christians, how we can learn um, some of the things of God and his attributes and qualities and how they display themselves in the Old Testament. One of the things we didn't cover a whole bunch last week is the fact that when we read the Old Testament, one of the ways that we can go about reading it is by seeing how everything that we read is an example of what we are taught in the New Testament and how we can see that play itself out in the Old Testament. Um, if you don't know what that means, hopefully you'll see by the end of the message what I mean by that, by seeing the New Testament played out in the Old Testament. So all that to say, King Saul, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. But why don't you go ahead and get your Bibles out, uh, whether you have a physical one or get your phone out. We're just going to be sort of glancing through some scriptures, so it's sort of nice if you can see some of those uh, subheadings that are in scripture, just so you can get an idea as we're sort of flying over some of these chapters. So Bible out to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, it's sort of a little less than halfway through the Old Testament part of your Bible. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are going to be where we're spending 
a majority of our time in our series on King David, right? So there are other books of Scripture that have King David in them and that King David actually wrote and contributed to, but First and Second Samuel are actually going to be our sort of springboard. We're going to stay most in there. So if you're looking at what can you be reading as we learn together uh, over the next like 10 weeks, you can be reading First and Second Samuel, and we're going to spend um, almost all of our time going through that verse by verse and not doing all these big flyovers like I'm doing tonight. So First Samuel, as you're turning there and as you're looking at it, let me just give you a brief history of what you're getting yourself into when you open this book. So let's just start at the very beginning, right? Like creation happened, Adam and Eve, we understand that part of it. And down the line after Adam and Eve and the fall and sin and being cast out of the garden, we get to Abraham. Abraham happened around like 2000 BC, somewhere around there. And um, he is important because he became the father of the Jews, right? The father Abraham, he's the father of God's chosen people. And it's through him that God's like, hey, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your name to become a nation and I'm going to bless the nations through you. So that's Abraham around 2000 BC. Um, And then we get to like Abraham had sons, right? Jacob was one of them. Um, you know, descending from him. And Jacob, he's the one who gets renamed Israel, right? So when we talk about the Israelites, we mean those that descend from Jacob. And his sons became the tribes of Israel. So uh, Jacob existed around 1900 BC, and then him and his sons and, and Joseph ended up in Egypt. And now we're starting to get to the part of history maybe you're a little more familiar with, right? So the Israelites in Egypt, most people know like the The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years, and then Moses leads them out of Egypt, right? Splitting of the Red Sea. You don't have to be a Christian to know that story. Splitting of the Red Sea leads them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, and that's like, I'm just giving you dates so you can reference it, right? That's around 1400 BC that that they are led into the Promised Land. What happens after that? This is where a lot of people's uh, understanding of Scripture starts to get foggy, right? Because it all sort of overlaps, and some of the books in the Bibles aren't chronological in the way that they're put down in order in Scripture here. So let me tell you, at this point, God's people enter the promised land. They start establishing themselves as a nation, and what we see first is the way God rules his people is through judges, through judges. If you're wondering what that is, it's not like a king, right? A king is like someone who reigns for as long as they live, and when they die, it succeeds usually to an heir or somebody in their family. A judge, think of it more like a prophet and priest that was set and appointed by God to rule for a certain amount of time, to judge the people on behalf of God, right? They they didn't govern the way that a king did, but rather they spoke to the people of Israel, what God wanted for them. That's a judge. And here's why it's important. Because when we start Samuel right here, Samuel is the last of the judges. He's the last judge to exist. And the book is called Samuel because it's dedicated to the fact that he starts the book and he transitions Israel from being led by judges to being led by kings. He is the last and ultimate one, and that's around, if you want to put a time on it, 1000 B.C., 1,000 B.C. is how old we're looking at right here in 1 Samuel. And if you're looking at it with me, just sort of skim some of these headings here. You know, you see the birth of Samuel. You learn a little bit about his family, his mom, 
Um, you learn in chapter 3 how the Lord called Samuel to be a prophet and judge. If you're just sort of you know, scrolling through or flipping your pages through, you see a little bit about the Philistines. They're going to be a major player in the next few weeks, all right, as enemies of God. You see about how they took the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was brought back. And this is all the first seven chapters. And it says Samuel judges Israel at the end of chapter 7. And then we are in chapter 8, and this is where I'm starting our story tonight with King Saul. Chapter 8, this is where we're at. Samuel's been judging them. The people of Israel have been led by judges for 300 years. And in chapter 8, this is what it says in verse 19, if you want to look there. 8.19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. There shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. That's what a judge did, right? He represented God to the people and the people to God. And the Lord said to Samuel, verse 22, 822 there, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to them, men of Israel, go every man to his city. So things are not going well, right? The, the people of God are refusing to listen to their God-given ruler. That's what you need to pick up in that verse. They told their judge, no, this is what we want. We don't care what you're saying God desires. We're saying this is what we want. We want to be like the other nations. Did you pick up on that? We want to be like them. They all have kings. They all have kings that are judging them and ruling over them and sending them into battle and winning battles for them and representing them and, and coming back. Like they don't want to be a people. They don't want to be a nation under God. They want to be a nation under a king. That's the statement they make. And God, in his graciousness and mercy to his people, he doesn't discipline them for rejecting him. Right then and there. You notice that? That's what they're doing. They're rejecting him. And he doesn't discipline them right away, but rather he grants their requests. And I want you to just keep that in mind as I show you a few other passages and we begin to piece this together. And you'll see how this relates to Saul. So the people of Israel demanded a king, right? And that leads us right to the intro of King Saul, the first king of Israel. So let's keep on looking through Samuel. We're in chapter 8 there. If you go to chapter 9, just right over there, um, we see that that's where Saul shows up, right? They demand a king, and immediately he's there right on the scene. And we see uh, chapter 9, this is what it tells us. He was, a, he was a very handsome man. He was a pretty boy, right? It says he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. also says he was the tallest man in all of Israel. So Saul's a good-looking guy, all right? He's very charismatic. He wins people over. We should know that about him, right? So that's like one of the first things it tells us about him besides the fact that he's a Benjamite, right? So that's his tribe. And let's go ahead and look there at verse 15 because this is what we need to see here. Verse 15, we see that the Lord is the one that chooses Saul. It says, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So they are again, right? They're going to keep on coming back. The Philistines as one of the enemies of God. For I have seen my people, and look at that line, because their cry has come to me. There again, 
Keep on building these up. There again, a concept about God and his people and him listening to them and him listening to what they want and more on that in just a second. So, so God is the one who chooses Saul and, and here, just like in chapter 8, we see God say that he's doing it. Why? Why is God doing it? Because of his people. Because they cried out to him. One last concept. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. So we're, we're just sort of zooming the, the timeline along as we go. So Saul is chosen by God to be king. Samuel tells him that. And then here in chapter 10, we see that Saul is actually anointed as king. That means he is blessed by God to become the first king of Israel. And Samuel, it says that he gathered everyone together. Look there, chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And here's the line. But today you have rejected your God. I'm the God that saved you from all these things. I'm in relationship with you. Verse 19, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distress. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord. Samuel starts that time and says, you're doing exactly what God doesn't want you to do. You're rejecting the one who will save you. You're rejecting the one who has guided you and would continue to guide you. All right, now let's set a king. That's, that's the statement made right there. And I told you we were going to learn some things through the story of King Saul, right? And things about how God works and who he is and, and what it reveals even to us as New Testament Christians now. I just showed you several times that Scripture lists a couple things, right? One, that God's people were rejecting him by wanting a king instead of him. But they cried out to God anyways. And, and I just showed you over multiple passages that not only does God acknowledge they're rejecting him, but he still grants them their request. And here's the first point we learned from that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, that text, the way I just said it, might sound familiar to you. With you. Like if you're familiar with the New Testament in the book of Romans, uh, where Paul talks about the love of God, you're going to recognize that lingo. And I'm going to read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read it over you. And I want you to just listen to the words that Paul has to say to the Romans at this point. This is Romans 8.31. He says, What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's God's chosen people. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, what this is saying is that for those who are Elect for those who are God's chosen people, for those that have authentically and sincerely declared their life to Christ and declared that He is their Savior and their Lord. For those people, God's love never, never leaves. We are never separated. And right here in 1 Samuel, in the story of King Saul. We already get to see that amazing truth pointed out. Like, think about it. The entirety of King Saul's reign begins with the simple fact that for those who belong to God, for those who are in covenant with him, nothing separates them from his love, including the times that they actively reject him. Including the times that they look at the world and are swayed by their desires to be like that rather than to be like him. And that's what the people of Israel are doing, right? They're God's chosen people. They, they are literally defined by knowing God and being in covenant with him. And yet they were wanting something of the world rather than what he had given them. Kings were of the world. Going out into battle and conquering the way the other nations were, that was of the world. But God had given them the judges. God had raised them up, and yet they were denying that and rejecting that and wanting the world over God. And yet God continued in relationship with them to work through that sin. The sin of rejecting him, he decides to work through it. To actively make it part of his plan in a way that's actually going to be for their good and for his glory. Like he worked through that sin because nothing, absolutely nothing, separates God from those whom he has chosen. Even their own desire to reject him. So that's the first point. That's the first point that we see just starting in King Saul. And actually from the exact same passage, we see another point that's closely related, just as important for us to understand and important enough for us to nuance separately. And that's this, that God works all things for good. Not only can nothing separate us from the love of God, but God works all things for good. This is also in Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. But it's Romans 8, 28, really popular verse. And it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And maybe you're familiar with this passage in Romans. I know we have one of our small groups actually going through Romans 8 right now. So you guys have probably heard it a bit uh, recently. Colin's waving his arms back there. So, so maybe you've heard this and you're thinking, so Cody, how exactly does this relate to King Saul then? Like I recognize that that's a truthful statement, but how does this and Israel's rejection and then King Saul coming along, how does this all interact with this story right now? And I want to explain that to you. Israel rejected God and wanted a king. 
God allowed Samuel to appoint a king. And you would think that Israel rejecting God's rule would have some major consequences. There'd be some major disciplines. And, And trust me, that comes. There's a lot of problems that come from them wanting a king. There's a lot of problems with them having a king. That's what you would expect. But you know what also comes from this decision? The other factor that comes from the decision to want a king is the fact that God brought King David to them. The fact that through their rejection of who God was giving them to his ruler and desiring to have their own chosen ruler, the fact that God took that, took their sin, worked through it in a way that he brought King David to them. And who comes from King David? Jesus. Jesus comes from King David. He is descended. He is the one who takes David's throne. And what does Jesus do? Jesus saves God's elect once and for all. So do you, so do you see what I'm saying here? What we see about God and the appointment of King Saul is that God is a God who is so sovereign. God is a God so transcendent, so mighty, so holy that he can take anything that happens and occurs through us and to us. He can take all those things and he can work it for our good and for his glory. Just like he took his own people rejecting him. He took his own people demanding a king over who he had raised up. And he turned it into the very thing that was going to redeem his people. Without Israel demanding an Israelite king, there would be no desire and design for a messianic king. So for those in Christ, these points, these are like great news of encouragement, right? And this is one of the ways I told you you can read the Old Testament to read into this and not only like try to follow how all this plays out, but just be like, what does this show about who I know God to be from all the times I've read through the letters in the New Testament? And this is just one example right there. This, this is great news because sin is not the end. Like the sin of Israel in this moment was not the end for the nation. It was actually the beginning of their redemption and they didn't even realize it, right? And the wage is no longer our death, but it's Christ. Like that's what we see and that is what came from this. But to be clear, there are still disciplines and consequences to our sin. Just like how Israel's demand for a king would ultimately lead to life rather than death, it still had some major consequences that we're going to cover in the next 10 weeks. Things they had to deal with, punishments they had to endure because of their choice. So, two encouragements so far. Two encouragements. We learn about God in relationship with him and the story of King Saul. But There's one more point I want to make tonight, and I think this point is crucial to really understanding Saul Himself. It's really crucial in understanding what was Saul's demise, what led to his type of interaction with David, what led to David even becoming anointed as king. It's this characteristic about Saul that we're going to study, that we need to learn from, and that we need to see and we need to recognize in ourselves. So I want you to think I gave you two encouragements, but I also want to give you a caution tonight and that caution the third point is that good intentions are not godly actions good intentions are not godly 
actions. So let's move forward just a little bit in the story so I, I can show you what I mean. So let me tell you, so Saul is, is anointed king, right? He becomes king. So he goes and he defeats some enemies of God, the Philistines, the Amicalites. Like he goes and, and he does exactly what they wanted, which causes all the people of Israel to confirm him as king any, uh, even more. Like if you're reading through it, you'll see he was anointed king. And then like you're reading the chapter and you're like, wait, and then it says that he's declared king. What does that mean? Well, that's means that all of Israel finally is like, yeah, this is our guy. This is our king. So he finally takes the full reign, the full responsibility, the full duties. And so Samuel, having been the judge, it's time for him to retire. So Samuel retires. He steps down as the role of judge. And he still continues as priest and prophet. We'll see that. But he steps down and retires. And, and then we get over here to chapter 13. Chapter 13, sort of the last chunk of Scripture we'll spend tonight in, uh, in 1 Samuel. Let me turn there. I'm still in Romans. I guess that wouldn't be, make any sense for me to read Romans 13 to you right now, huh? So, in, uh, in chapter 13, what we see is that, that Saul is, is here with another fight, right? He is fighting the Philistines there at the very beginning of it. And he's in the midst of this battle, and he's already won some of the battle, and they're still encamped in this battle and what he's doing is he is waiting for Samuel to show up because they want to be blessed by God they want to know they have the favor of God to continue to go into battle and so they want Samuel to come show up uh, give some offerings of peace to the Lord and sacrifices and make sure they have the Lord's blessing before they head back into battle and so Saul's waiting here for Samuel and he waits for seven days. That's how long Samuel told him to wait. And Samuel's not showing up. Samuel isn't showing up. And this is what it says Saul did. So look with me here for Samuel 13, 8. He, meaning Saul, waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gagal. And the people were scattering from him. So people were leaving Saul at this point because Samuel wasn't there yet. So Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gagal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And right there, that's when David enters the story. We're going to see that prince come to be the king. We're going to see the man after God's own heart be found and be anointed. But it all starts right here. With Saul deciding to do something he shouldn't have done. And what, what do we see? We see that... that Saul is waiting for Samuel to make these sacrifices and Samuel's not showing up and, and Saul is losing these people. 
These people are scattering, right? He's losing his army because they don't feel they have the blessing of the Lord. They don't feel like they've been blessed to go into battle. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands and he decides, I'm going to unite these people and I'm going to offer up worship to God. And what he does is Saul takes the role of the priest, which is commanded not to. Only the priest offers sacrifices to God as commanded by God. God said, the priest is the one who will offer these sacrifices on behalf of Israel. And Saul decides, I'm the king. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to get this done right now. And what I would say is, doesn't doesn't it sound like a good intention? Like that Israel would have united people? That Israel would have offerings that are given over to God as worship and sacrifice? Like, what, how does that not sound like a good intention? Like if you were to go up to anybody in church on a weekend and you would say, hey, what do you think of God's people being unified and God receiving the worship that he's due? Are you okay with that? Nine times out of ten, that Christian is going to say, Yes, yes, please. I would love the church to be more unified. I would love for all of us to stop bickering and fighting. And I think it would be awesome if God received all the worship that he was due. Like those statements are good intentions and they're good things to hear. And so you can see how it would be easy to paint what Saul was doing as a good intention. He just wanted unity. Just wanted to sacrifice and offer to the Lord. Just wanted to prepare his people to go back in the battle to to defeat the enemies of God. But what we come to find out is that all it was was a selfish action painted to look like a good intention. It was a selfish action painted to look like a good intention. Because what we see is that Saul didn't trust the Lord. He didn't trust the sovereignty of God to bring Samuel at the time appointed. He didn't respect and trust the word of God enough to know that he shouldn't violate it, no matter what circumstance that he found himself in. And especially as the king of God's people, he shouldn't lead his people into corporate sin. But he chose to do that anyways. And what we see is that King Saul, his entire kingship and reign is stained with this exact type of situation. I told you this was his downfall, right? I told you this was the thing that defined Saul and caused him to lose everything that he had. And this isn't the only time that we see it. This actually happens again just two chapters later. You don't have to turn there if you want. I'm just going to read just a little bit of it. But this happens two chapters later. It's connected to this. But what happens is that Saul goes off to war again. And he's told, like, everything you capture, put it towards the destruction. Right? Like, you are not to have a part of it. You are not to to gather any of it, collect any of it. You are to leave it to the destruction of the Lord because it is the enemies of the Lord, right? Everything. Literally, the the goats, the property, the, the enemies, the people, right? All of that. Leave it to the Lord. Do not take it. And then he doesn't listen. And Samuel shows back up. Again. Samuel's like, what were you doing? And Saul's like, I was doing what you told me to do. And then Samuel says this in verse 19. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission that the Lord sent me. I've brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gagal. Samuel goes on and be like, does the Lord have any pleasure in burnt offerings when you disobeyed him? Does he have any pleasure in taking what you've told him not to do and trying to turn it into worship? And Saul says in verse 24, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said, I will not return to you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and now the Lord has rejected you as king. Of Israel. So what happened here? It's the exact same scenario, right? But this time it's way more clear. This time it's crystal clear. Samuel says, you rejected the word of God. You clearly rejected the word of God. You didn't listen to the direct command and law given to you. And because you have rejected God, he has now rejected you. And what did Saul say? He was doing. First thing he said was, yeah, I did what you told me, but we decided to, to keep, you know, the, the oxen and cattle so we could worship the Lord with them. That's a good intention, guys. That's a good intention. I want to take the best of what I found and I want to give it to God as worship. But is that actually what happened? It's not, because what does Saul say? He confesses and says, I feared the people. They wanted to do something different, and so I listened to it. Saul had a good intention, painted sin. He put the fear of people over the fear of God, breaking God's commandments, treating them flippantly and disrespectfully, as the king of Israel, not respecting the God of Israel. And so he once again took a sin and painted it with good intentions. And how we're going to end tonight is I want you to think through the ways in your life, right? This is how we read the Old Testament. We see these things, we see these truths of God, and we look at how they apply to us standing on this side of the cross, walking with Christ, being a person of God. And I want you to ask, what are the areas in my life that I paint with good intentions but are sin? What are the areas of my life, Lord, reveal to me the areas that I say I'm doing something for good reasons? That I do something that might look good and tell people it's for good reasons. But it's actually just downright sin. And how do you do that? First of all, it's personal. It starts personal, guys. Right? Asking the Lord, praying, opening his word, asking him to show you those specific sins in your life. It starts personal, but it doesn't end there. It gets corporate. For those of you that are in our C groups and our small groups, this is the type of thing you have discussion on. Like, hey... Last time we met, we talked about like the things that we pretend are good, even though we have sinful desires for them, sinful reasons. 
Anything you guys want to share that we can help you with, that we can call you out on, that we can encourage you in, right? Those things. And then it moves to actually changing those things through the Holy Spirit empowering you, right? So let me give you a couple examples as we end here as just to get your mind going. I have two. One has to do with the, the current culture. If you guys listen to our podcast a couple weeks ago, we had Dr. Christopher Wall on. That's Dr. Christopher Wall right there. And he talked about the gospel preached to college students and how it's the gospel of self-actualization. The idea of find your truth, live your truth, be your truth, right? And that is, the, that is what's being fed to your generation. And what I want to say to you is that is, um, that is good intention painted sin. Right? There are really great intentions to knowing more about you. There are great intentions, right? Like if I didn't know that the Lord had gifted me in music or if I didn't know that I liked to speak to the public, I would never have become a worship and college pastor, right? If I didn't have some amount of self-awareness of who I was and discovering who God made me to be, I couldn't do the most and be called to what God has called me to do, right? There is a certain level of you discovering yourself that needs to happen. But it's discovering what God has put in you and formed in you. But there's also a level in which it becomes self-idolatry. That it becomes self-worship. That it becomes putting yourself and what you say you are and what you desire over what God says you are and what you should desire. It's a complicated one, but it's one that we can easily paint with these self-good uh, intentions of like, I'm just trying to be a healthier me. I'm just trying to be a happier me. I'm just trying to understand me better so that I can act me better and I cannot hurt other people and I cannot hurt, right? We paint all these good intentions over a sin of self-idolatry. Let me give you an easier one. This one happens all the time. It's like Christian Youth Group 101, okay? Hey, how can I pray for you? What am I getting at? I'm getting at gossip. I'm getting at bringing yourself into somebody's life in order to be judgmental, right? But it's a, it's a good intention. I'm asking how I can pray for you guys. All I want to do is, is intercede on your behalf. I just want to go to the Lord for you. Oh, I'm so sorry that's happening in your life. Yep, I got it. Don't worry. I'll pray, I'll pray for it. Far too often, we as Christians, we want to know what's going on in other people's lives, not so we can pray for them, not because we sincerely care about one another, but because we want to know. Because we want to judge, and we want to compare, and we want to gossip. And guys, that is good intention painted sin. So that's just a couple of them. I'm not accusing any one person of any of those things, but those are just the things that popped in my mind of like, these are easy to do. And there's a lot more of them. So that's how I want you to spend your application this week, is thinking through, Lord, what are the things that I say I have in good intentions on but are actually just not godly actions? Because what we see in King Saul is that led to his demise. That led to him outright rejecting God's law and God's word. And as we see that, we want to follow after Christ and not become like Saul, right? So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time. Father, thank you that we got through so much of 1 Samuel tonight and that um, we were able to go chapter after chapter. And from what I could tell, no one fell asleep. So thank you, Lord, that 
uh, we are able to just cover a huge chunk of scripture. I pray that as we now dive more intently, verse by verse, into specific stories in King David's life, Lord, that you would bless our time spending a great focus on a small amount of scripture, Lord, that you would show us what you have for us in your word when it comes to David and Goliath, when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant and worship, when it comes to the Davidic Covenant, when it comes to the sin with Bathsheba, Lord. And when it comes to fleeing from your enemies. Lord, would you teach us all that you have for us in this series with King David. Would you continue to build us together like only you can. Would you grow us in understanding and love and knowledge. And Lord, would you just help us to find your word all the more satisfying, intriguing, interesting. And grow our passion of it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.